following sermon is from Faith Bible Church, located in Murrieta, California. More information about Faith Bible Church is available at www.faith-bible.net. Money! Money, that's money! Money is a tool or money is a trap. Wealth is a blessing, or wealth is actually a a blister. Being rich is delightful, it's also a disaster. When someone is wealthy, they can be generous and giving and godly with their money, or they can be damaging, deadly, and depraved with their money. And in James chapter 5, the half-brother of our Lord Jesus Christ teaches some terrible truth on the misuse of money, of wealth. James teaches the rotten rich. He actually is addressing the wicked wealthy in this particular text. James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6 are talking about oppressive farmers who are taking advantage of others and oppressing people. And then in verse 7 through 11, which we'll look at next week, he actually talks to the oppressed, those who have been taken advantage of, and it's actually one of the most powerful messages that I think I'll probably ever give. You don't want to miss next week. Understand, not all rich are oppressors, and not all poor are the oppressed, but here's the shocker. In this particular text, they're both present in the same churches. That's what's the shocker, is the oppressors and the oppressed are going to church together and trying to deal with this tension. In fact, James has already made mention of the rich. Back in James chapter 1, verse 10, if you look there, the rich should glory in their humiliation because they will pass away like grass in the scorching wind. And then in chapter 2, he mentions them again. The congregation should not play favorites toward the rich because... They're the ones that tend to persecute Christians. He even mentions them in chapter 4 as well. And after all that, you think that James's attitude would be that he has a bad attitude towards wealthy people. And maybe some of you do as well. But back then, as well as today, there are specific temptations that the rich face. And there are certain abuses that the rich can dish out. And interesting enough, in the churches that James writes, there were wealthy who were claiming to be saved... But they were dishing out some abuses. They were taking advantage of their particular situation. And God in his word repeatedly warns that a person's financial worth and wealth or their lack of wealth does not determine their relationship with the Lord. Whether you're poor or whether you're wealthy, it does not determine your relationship with Christ. Whether you're rich or poor, you must humble yourself before God, realizing that you're a sinner who stands condemned before Jesus Christ, and that only Christ can take care of the sin that separates you from God, and only by relinquishing your life and surrendering to Him by faith and turning from your sin and repentance can you actually be born again. It has nothing to do with your financial status or your portfolio. Understand, though, when you have been internally born again and you're right with God, true salvation will affect what you do with your finances, and But, at the same time, true salvation has nothing to do with your abundance of money or your lack of money. Now, why is it that more poor people turn to Jesus Christ worldwide than rich people? 
That is a fact. It is undisputed. Why is that? Well, simply because the rich have a, a disadvantage because they have their needs met and they don't have a natural sense of saying, I've got a great need, where the poor are reminded constantly of their massive need and they end up turning to Christ over that. Does that make sense? The rich have a disadvantage. And so interesting enough, the New Testament, though, is very clear that you're not automatically evil when you're wealthy. All right, come on, collegians. They're not automatically evil when you're wealthy. And then also, if you are wealthy and in Christ, the Lord teaches you some very specific things. Take a look at what your Bible has to say. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17, in the microfiche on your outline, it says, Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited, or to fix their hope on the, what, uncertainty of riches, but to fix their hope on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for a future, so that you may take hold of that which is life indeed. James does not condemn people who have resources. But he does condemn those who misuse their resources, who are greedy, who are criminal with their resources in gaining more. But unlike the believing rich in Timothy's congregation, the many in the rich in James's congregations are the wicked wealthy who are professing faith in Christ. They're actually connected to the church, but their God, their real God, is money. It's things, it's profits, it's pleasure, it's fun, it's gain, it's greed. Their real God is not Christ. There is a big difference between the financially rich and poor, and there's an even more bigger difference between the spiritually rich and the spiritually poor. Take a look at the chart in your outline. Uh, Biblically, you are considered physically poor. You say, Chris, I feel poor. Listen, you are poor. When you biblically lack food, when you lack clothing, or you lack shelter on an ongoing basis, that takes you into, biblically speaking, the poor category. Which means that all of you here, generally speaking, are physically what? Rich. We are wealthy. We are a wealthy nation. We are not consumed with people who are lacking food, lacking clothing, lacking shelter. It does go on in our country, but it is not the norm in our country. And when you are spiritually poor, though, uh, the Bible defines that as you lack salvation. You lack salvation. But when you're in Christ, the Bible tells us that we inherit spiritual millions. We are basically sons of the King. We are related to Jesus Christ. We have eternal riches. Do you feel that way? You should. Interesting, James is writing to the bottom column in your notes, the physically rich but spiritually poor. He's writing church attenders who are wealthy, but they are not in Christ. They're not Christians. They're not born again. And for prostituting the gracious goodness and generosity of God, these church-going but not saved wealthy can only anticipate punishment. Read what James writes now in verses 1 through 6 as we unfold this text. And don't let these words burn you. They are very, very hot, okay? Uh, It is very, very severe. Look what he says right out of 1 through 6 of chapter 5. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. 
Let's all read this together starting in verse 2, okay everybody? Here we go, ready? Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you, and the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and let a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. Wow, what is going on here? This is an incredible passage. These selfish rich were gaining more wealth through injustice. They were taking advantage of the poor. These are oppressive farmers that he's addressing in these first six verses who attend church, but they're not saved. And these wicked wealthy took advantage of the day laborers who worked their fields. Now the Bible does teach us in 1 Timothy 5, 8 and other places that the laborer is worthy of his wage. One more time, it's general, great, true principle from the scripture, the laborer is worthy of his wages. It is. You do a hard day's work, you are due pay. It's a, it's a general principle. Part of the reason for the day laborer being talked about here in the Old and New Testament is that in Palestine, the day laborer lived on the verge of starvation. His wage was small, it was impossible for him to save anything, and if his wages were withheld from him, even for a day, his family would go without food. That's how rough it was for him, and therefore, as they say in Texas, they're so poor their Sunday dinner was fried water, you know what I mean? So why is it that there are so many compassionate and merciful laws in the Old Testament about the fair and prompt payment of the hired laborer? Well, just this reason. That's why. Take a look at two of them in your outline. Deuteronomy 24, you shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy. You shall give him his wages on his day before the sun sets. Give it that day. For he is poor and he sets his heart on it so that he will not cry out against you to the Lord and it becomes sin in you. Jeremiah 22. And again, this is just two out of many in the Old Testament. Verse 13, woe to him who builds his house without righteousness. And his upper rooms without justice. Now, if you had upper rooms in Palestine, you're a wealthy person. Okay, Most people's houses were just a flat roof, single story. When you started building a second story, that meant chukelala. Okay? And therefore, he who uses his neighbor's services without pay and does not give him his wages, woe to him. The wicked wealthy in James chapter 5 were oppressing the poor in this manner. They were not paying their day laborers. That's what he says right in the text. Now that is talked about again in verses 1 through 6. Now you're saying, well, what, what, what should the day laborer do? That's verses 7 through 11. And it actually talks about what happens when your life really gets to the bottom of the barrel. And it's such an encouraging text. You want to be here. Very powerful next week. You and I need this passage though. We need to hear about what it means to be wealthy because we are wealthy, according to the Scripture, and you and I are the wealthy, and what we do to gain our wealth, what we do to use our wealth, what we do to invest our wealth, what we do to give our wealth really matters to the Lord. 
It really matters to him. Look at the warning of 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, there in your outline. Realize this, in the last days, difficult times will come. What's the first two things? Men will be lovers of self and lovers of money. Remember Paul's words in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 7. Look at your outline there. For we have brought nothing into the world. Uh, in fact, we cannot take anything out of it either. Ready? No hearst ever pulls a U-Haul, right? You got that? You don't take anything with you. There's no storage facility in heaven, you know, that you pay a little extra. It's not there. Understand, it's you take nothing with you, anything out of it. You brought nothing into it. If we have, now listen to what he says in verse 8. If we have food and covering, with these you shall be what? Content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many, many griefs. What do we do in our day? We spend money we don't have to buy things we really don't want to impress people we don't like, okay? That's our culture. And Jesus tells us it should be different for us. What's he say in Luke chapter 12? Look at what he says. Sell your possessions, not just necessarily at a garage sale. Okay, give to charity, make yourselves money belts which don't wear out, an unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes near nor moth destroys. You're to be givers, you're you're to be uh, meeting needs, you're to be investing in heaven, and listen, basically James' assumption through this whole letter is that you have given your life to Jesus Christ. That means that your money is His, right? Everything belongs to Him. So understand, we are not to be, Luke 16, 14, like the Pharisees who were lovers of money. And we should heed the warning of Hebrews chapter 13, 5. What's it say? Make sure that your character is free from, your whole character free from what? The love of money. Being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. Many who are temporarily living in luxury in this life, you are at the checkout stand at the grocery market and you see the updated I always check the updates right there all the rags that are there telling me about who's rich who's not who's famous who's not and basically you know how they're losing their lives uh, for, for for weird purposes and those people who live in luxury in this life will suffer greatly in the next so many many not all but many many of those who suffer greatly in this life will live in luxury in the next And the key is that those who live for Christ in this life, including with their finances, will have joy in this life, richer or poor, and will have reward in the next. That's the scripture. That's what he's saying. The unsaved church-going wealthy that James is addressing were being cruel. They were being indifferent towards believers that they're fellowshipping with on Sunday morning in the gym at Marietta Valley. No, no, back in. And James points to their certain coming judgment while reminding all of us who have enough food and enough clothing and enough shelter to use our wealth for Jesus Christ. So number one in your outline, let's take a look at it. The hoarding of the rich and powerful pays painful dividends. The hoarding of the rich and powerful pays painful dividends. Now, honestly, if you look into the face of the unsaved wealthy today, most often you see stress. You see bitterness, you see emptiness. Even the Beatles taught us that money can't buy me love, right? 
And people who are wealthy often want to try to purchase happiness, and often it brings despair. And again, one more time, being wealthy is not a sin. And James is not saying the poor go to heaven and the wealthy go to hell. But what he's saying is what the wealthy do with their riches and the influence that that brings with them and for them can result in awful sin. And that's what he's addressing here. So James declares coming judgment against the wealthy here in this text for any abuse with their money making. So take a look at verse 1. Come now, he says, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Come now is listen up. It means get this, pray it, pay attention. And then he adds a command, weep. He commands them to weep, the rich. Wow. And then he goes on going howling. You say, why is weep and howling in there? Weep is to sob out loud. It actually is to be overwhelmingly shameful, guilty, or sorrowful. It's the same weeping that might accompany genuine repentance. So he's calling the rich right here, weep over your sin. Weep over your sin. And then he says howl, which is ongoing, which is basically a word that's only here in the New Testament. It's anima poetic. What that means is, is that it's a word that means what it sounds, it sounds what it means. And what it sounds like is screaming outbursts and despair. Okay, the word actually sounds that way. So why would the rotten rich then cry and groan? Verse 1 gives the reason. Take a look. He says, your miseries which are coming upon you. And miseries there is ongoing hardship, trouble, and distress. Overwhelming suffering is going to be visited upon the wicked wealthy when they stand before the Lord in judgment. He's talking about judgment is coming. You're going to be evaluated. How bad will it be? Well, James next gives a description of that coming judgment in verses 2 and 3, and he's talking to the lecherous loaded here. And so what does he say? Take a look. He says, verse 2, your riches have rotted, and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted. Wow. And their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Now, James points to the folly of hoarding your wealth, hoarding food, collecting expensive clothing, uh, of gaining through evil means money, all of which is subject to decay, fire, theft, other forms of loss. In those days, a person could display their wealth basically three ways. Are you ready? They could have a lavish banquet and invite you over and eat until you're silly. Okay, they'll wear incredible clothes that are sometimes studded with jewels and all kinds of things. Or the third way is they spend wildly. They just buy wildly. They throw coinage to the poor, that kind of thing. The three ways you do it. James basically targets all three of those of that flamboyant lifestyle of the rich to point out how foolish it is to center your life around material things and finances. Through time of disuse, food goes bad. Have you noticed that in your refrigerator? It does. It goes bad. Even when you store it in barns, garments get even by moths. Uh, precious metals, when they're mixed with other metals, which often they were in the um, ancient times here, uh, it will rust. And James says, your riches have rotted. And that word refers to rotting wood, you know what that looks like, or spoiled flesh or meat that's gone bad, or spoiled fruit. And he's indicting the wicked rich for basically trying to store extra meat, extra grain, extra fruit, because eventually they what? They rot. They spoil. 
like the rich fool in the parable in Luke chapter 12 who wanted a big bill, bigger barns to hold all his stuff. And all of a sudden, you know, the Lord said, hey, tonight your soul is called upon. And therefore, you know, all of that stuff that he stored is now going to all rot. It, it was just useless. So James adds, your garments have become moth-eaten. Now, garments is describing outer garments. That uh, would be our way of saying a label. Are you with me? Come on, a label. Anybody into label? You're not going to raise your hand. I know you're not. Armane. Huh? Can you say, I don't need to say it right. Armane. Uh, Gucci. Gucci. Huh? Uh, Chanel. Uh, Versace. Dior. <laughs> yeah, it's all there. It's our, it's our culture, just not outer garments, but label. It's all of a sudden people, oh, look at what you're wearing. Hoarding them is, is foolish as hoarding food because they get worn out. And I know, guys, we've got that one shirt that we love more than any other shirt, you know, and sadly, it gets worn out. No, honey, I know it stinks. Don't wash it because I don't want it to be worn out. Yeah, okay. Verse 3 says, your gold and your silver have rusted. And James may be describing the coinage of his day, which contained alloys, which rusted. Or maybe this is a figurative reference declaring that in the day of God's judgment gold and silver will be as useless as if they're rusted but by hoarding rather than sharing the wealth of the rich rots it deteriorates it rusts and all that hoarding is a witness it's a witness it's like put up on the witness stand in their time of judgment when it spoils when all that hoarded rotted moth-eaten corroded treasures will give graphic testimony of the unregenerate state of their hearts because it belongs to others it should be given it should not be hoarded their selfish earthbound approach to life will result in their condemnation in fact not only does James portray rust as a witness but also he portrays it as an executioner take a look at that phrase in verse 3 it will consume the flesh of the wicked like fire you see that circle that word fire that's always a reference to judgment, inescapable final judgment of the wicked rich. It is a vivid picture of hell, a place of fire that consumes the flesh. We're describing a literal place of physical torment. This is one of the most graphic and sober realities in all of Scripture. There is an eternal place of torment where people go forever called hell. A place of conscious, bodily, eternal punishment. And what James says here, verse 3, take a look at it. In the last days, when is the last days? Listen, friends, it is right now. Between the comings of Christ, the first coming and the second coming, is the period that the Bible calls the last days. And we are in the last days right now. And in that time, right now, those who hoard their treasure instead of giving a fair wage to workers, instead of using their wealth, not all of it, you've got to provide for your family, but using their wealth for God's purposes, they store it up, they treasure it, they're actually storing up judgment upon themselves. That's what James is saying. And the verb choices here are pretty graphic. What it literally means here is the food rots and it remains rotten. It doesn't get better, right? When food rots, does it get better? It doesn't get better. 
he uses a verb that communicates that. He says the clothes are moth-eaten, they, they're messy, they're, they're worn out, and they remain that way. And the coins now are not only rusted, but they can't be cleaned up, they can't be used, they're useless now. And basically what he's saying is that judgment is guaranteed. Great money cannot rescue you from hell. One more time. Your wealth, your convenience, your ease, hey, life is good, cannot rescue you from hell. It can't. Only Christ can. Only His righteousness can make you right before Him. And James is teaching, there's a day, and it's coming for every single person in this room. No matter how old, no matter how young you are, every person in this day will face the true accountant, the true one. And he will conduct his audit on your life. And on that day, the wicked wealthy will be handed a bill that they cannot pay. And all their earthly treasures will be ash blowing in the wind. It will count for nothing. Because again, the only way that you can be right with him is that he would cover you in his righteousness so you would have his robe of righteousness to stand in his righteous presence or not. And the interesting thing is when he covers you in his robe of righteousness, he not only does that, but he changes you, regenerates you, gives you a new heart, so now you want to live for him, and your wealth now belongs to him, and only Christ can do that. In Christ, he alone can rescue you on the judgment day, and when Christ is your master, then your wealth is used for him. It is. And our culture needs a massive reminder that our wealth is his. It's not ours. It's his. Number two in your outline, he says, the unjust actions of the rich and powerful will not go unpunished. It will not go unpunished. James is now delineating the charges against the oppressive affluent. The wicked rich here are not only guilty of hoarding their wealth, but they also sinfully acquired their wealth. Far from being generous to the poor, they were exploiting the poor. Look what he says in verse 4. Take a look at it. He says, Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields, which has been withheld by you, you haven't given it to them, it cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. Now these rotten rich had withheld pay from these day laborers who worked their fields. And the practice is so shocking that James begins verse 4 with the word, Behold! Okay, hey, can you believe this? That would be the way we'd say it. Yeah, can, you, can you understand this? This is unbelievable, shocking. And then he uses a tense with the verb withhold that basically means not only a delay in payment, they completely withheld the pay they owed. Whether it was partial or all, they, they just withheld it all. The rich cheated their laborers. And James says the painful cries of these defrauded laborers and their children who are starving has reached the ears of God. And they will echo there until the Lord acts in righteous judgment. Now, what's scary to me in this text is the oppressors and the oppressed are in the same churches. Isn't that crazy to think about that? That's what's happening. And understand, that's going to echo in the ears of God until they uh, realize that the Lord is going to act in righteous judgment. The Lord of Sabaoth means the Lord of armies or the Lord of hosts. It refers to God as the judge who wages war against his enemies. Now listen, would you please just remember this? When God wages war against his enemies, who wins? 
Yeah, 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 yeah. And that's what he's saying here. Lord of Sabaoth, you, you, you got no chance against the Lord of Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. You, you, no one wins against this army. This is the undefeatable army. And one sign of the selfish rich is, is amazing. What Here, he's waging war against his enemies, and James affirms that this judge hears the cry of those defrauded laborers and the sign of the selfish rich, this is so scary in our culture, is their reluctance to pay their bills. Christians, on the other hand, pay their bills. It's actually a disgrace when we who claim to follow Christ take advantage of others and not pay what we owe. It's a disgrace. It is actually a witness against Christ. Hey, remember that when the world was in a financial crisis uh, a while back, 2008, and numerous super rich rewarded themselves with bonuses and raises while their employees were being fired? Remember that? That's a little bit what's going on here. And the shocking reality is that some of the greediest people in the world are also the wealthiest. And some of the most generous people in the world are so poor they give you their last dollar. A frightening judgment awaits those who unjustly hoard their wealth and rob, point number two, from the poor. And their victims will cry out for justice to the righteous judge who hears their cry, who answers their anguish. And basically what he's saying here is that there will be payback. There will be payback. Number three in your outline, the selfish rich uh, lifestyle of the rich and powerful only stores up punishment. The selfish lifestyle of rich and powerful only stores up punishment. James is rebuking now the cruel cash crowd because the use of their wealth is selfish. Look what he says in verse 5. He says, you have lived what? Oh, come on, say it like you mean it. You've lived what? Now say it with an accent, luxuriously, all right? You've lived luxuriously on earth, and you've led a life of wanton pleasure, and you have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. The wicked wealthy live in the lap of luxury, and I know there are times that we envy that. They indulge in pleasure. They're fattening not just their bellies, but they're trying to actually satisfy the cry of their own heart. The, the desire of their home, the longings of their heart with a self-indulgent lifestyle. Uh, it's kind of like a pig fattened for slaughter. These wealthy, selfish gorge on the pleasures of life, James says. And as they do, they're eating and drinking judgment to themselves. In fact, after robbing the day laborers to accumulate more wealth, the rich take all that ill-gotten gain and those prophets, and they indulge themselves with extravagance. That's how they reward themselves. Notice the word luxury. Luxury, it always leads to sin when a person becomes consumed with the pursuit of pleasure. You say, why? Well, a life without self-denial soon becomes out of control in other areas, right? You don't stop denying yourself, it becomes out of control. And luxury is only used here in the New Testament, the only place, and actually, you could put in your Bible above that word, softness. Softness. James is condemning the wicked rich for living a soft lifestyle. Wow, that's a little scary. I like softness. I like my mattress soft. I like my chair. Anybody? Somebody who is saying, I like those chairs in the pack. They're soft, right? Right now, I can't feel anything down there, okay? So, I get it. 
Interesting, James is condemning that, uh, that, that longing for that, uh, when it's at the expense of others. When it's at the expense of others. Uh, they're, they're far from being the first century Robin Hoods here, right? Who, you know, steal from the rich to give to the poor. They're actually stealing from the poor to lavishly line their own rich pockets. That's what's happening. And the Greek word pleasure there, when it says lead a life of wanton pleasure, that actually, actually explains a little bit what's going on here. It's the stuff you read in the rags, you know, as you're about to check out in the grocery store. It's the lewdness and lasciviousness. That's really what it means. The wanton pleasure there means lewdness and lasciviousness. The, the selfish rich are condemned because they use their wealth to gratify their own love of soft comfort and convenience to satisfy their own lewd and perverted lifestyle. Pleasure. All at the expense of the day laborers who are at church with them every week. Crazy. And these rich that James condemns have indulged themselves to the limit. And at the point uh, here, James actually is really grabbing our attention because he's using a familiar image, not to us, but familiar to that first century reader. At a key celebration, they would have a goat, a cow, a calf, and it's fed and fattened for weeks so it can be the centerpiece of a gigantic banquet. Are you understand this? Gene and I are in Israel, and we're walking by a construction site, and right there in front of this construction site, floor one is done, and they're working on floor two. And there's a, a stake in the ground, and there's this gigantic, I mean, this is the fattest goat I've ever seen in my life. And all around this goat, we never, ever, ever once saw this goat without food in front of it. They just threw food down there constantly and, and it would just sit there and not eat all of it because it was so full all the time and so fat. And we kept wondering, why is Fatty over here, Fatty Goat, why is he there? And one of the locals told me, he's here, so when they finish the second floor, he's the centerpiece of their banquet. And Gene and I decided that we were not going to make a pet of Fatty uh, because Fatty had a limited time span. If you follow what I'm saying? That's what they're doing. And every time we walk by, there's lettuce, there's tomato, there's other stuff there, and they're just fattening this guy, and he can, he can only eat as much as he can eat, and he won't eat everything that's there. And the imagery that James is giving us here is basically, he's saying that this vivid description is one of judgment. The wicked rich cheat others. These rich are fattening themselves up to be the centerpiece at the Lord's coming judgment. Wow. And remember, as I'm reading this and studying this, I'm realizing I'm the wealthy. You're the wealthy. That's us. Those with money frequently close their eyes to the needs of others and the work of the Lord. And the rich can often live solely only to gratify their own pleasure desires. And apart from faith in Christ, they face eternal loss. Number four in your outline, the abuse of the believing by rich and powerful will not be forgotten by the judge. The judge is not going to forget what they've done. He's not. Verse six, what is he saying? You have condemned and what? Put to death the righteous man and he does not resist you. Wow, condemned and murdered. See the word there, put to death? You, you might want to scratch that out. Every single time in the New Testament that that is translated, except for here, it is the word murder. You have condemned and murdered the righteous man. 
say, what was going on? Well, this is the final progression, okay, the downward spiral. So get what we've looked at so far of the wicked wealthy. Number one, they have unjustly hoarded the money. Number two, they robbed their poor day laborers. Then three, they spent it on their self-indulgent desires. And now, point four, take it a step further, they condemn and put to death the righteous man. Their heart of overindulgence consumes these rich to the point they'll do anything to sustain their lifestyle. Anything. Remember what he says in James chapter 2, verse 6? He said, you've dishonored the poor man, talking about the wealthy. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Well, echoing that phrase, put drag you into court, James now takes his rebuke to a higher level. The rich are guilty of judging and putting to death the righteous. You say, who's the righteous here? Who's the righteous? There's two possibilities. Number one, it might be referring to our Lord Jesus Christ, who when he was put to death, he did not resist, right? He didn't even speak. He basically died for the sins of his chosen. In fact, that's referred to several times in the New Testament, Acts 13, 3, 14, excuse me. You denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. Isaiah 53, the suffering servant of the Lord offered no resistance. He opened not his mouth and like a sheep before his shearers, he was dumb. And James might be saying that by oppressing the poor, the selfish rich will have crucified Christ again. And there's a truth in the sense that every wound that the selfishness inflicts on Christ's children is another wound that's inflicted on Christ. But most likely, James is actually describing believers here, not Christ, believers directly, who've been made righteous and who seek to live righteously. They've been made righteous and they seek to live righteously. And he's rebuking the rich because they're guilty of taking advantage of the righteous who, who don't resist them. Are you getting it? They don't protest. They don't scream. They don't fight. They don't resist them to the point that they're taking them to court and as a result condemning them to death, either through the courts leading to their own starvation or accusing them of some criminal offense. Look at the word condemned there in verse 6. Condemned. You have condemned it means to pass sentence or to condemn someone in court so he's talking about court of law here and the implication is the rich were using the courts to actually commit judicial murder are you getting that what's happening is the rancid rich are literally killing to maintain their opulent lifestyle you see how are they doing that they're basically going to court and they're suing the day laborers saying, you didn't do the job good enough, or you didn't do the job at all. You say, man, that is really unjust. That makes me mad. That's what's going on here. That's exactly what's going on. It happens today as well. Now, God did create the courts to be fair and impartial, dispense justice, and judges were not to be greedy or partial or accept bribes, but that's not always true, is it? That's not always true. And it wasn't even the case even in Israel. Take a look at Amos 5.12. Take a look at it. For I know your transgressions are many and your sins are great. You who distress the righteous and accept bribes and turn aside the poor in the gate. The gate is where local city courts took place. That's where the court was. So the believer pursuing Christ is seen here as someone who lives morally upright. He's a righteous And James makes it clear that these victims of the rich oppressors were innocent of any crime, of any wrongdoing at all. They didn't do anything wrong. 
And yet, entrusting themselves to the Lord, they didn't resist arrest. And they were hauled into court by the wicked wealthy, cheating them out of their just wages. Believers trust even in God's providence when it's unfair and even when it's in the courts. Now, doesn't that sound discouraging to you? Come on, anybody with me? The, the righteous are going to courts and they're losing everything and their family's starving. And they're being taken advantage of by greedy, greedy people who are controlling most of society. Amazon, oh sorry, um, stuff like that. <clears throat> you know, you could really get discouraged when you read a passage like this until you remember that God is the one who allows trials. Until you remember that this life is not the end. It's not what we live for. And only those made righteous can have joy in this life and reward in the future. Only those who've been made righteous by Christ. Many who are temporarily this day living in luxury in this life will suffer greatly in the life to come. Many who are suffering greatly in this life and live without in this life will live in luxury in the next life. And only those who are in Christ and use their wealth for Christ have joy now and reward forever. And that's James. So take this home. If you are the wealthy, which means you have enough clothes, let me check your closet. You got enough food, let me check your fridge. And you got enough shelter, let me check your shack that you live in. Then these belong to you. What are some basic, letter A, commitments with wealth? What are some basic commitments with wealth? Well, you're to provide for your family's needs. You're to provide for your family's needs. 1 Timothy 5.8. Take a look at it. If anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his, what? Household. He has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. This is our job. Providing for our families. Provision involves budgeting, working hard, working like the ant. Man, talk about, want to teach your kids something useful? Teach them how to work hard. Really hard. Really hard. And thankfully, understanding that work is not a curse. Work is a part of God's creation. There was work before the fall, friends. Before there was sin. Are you with me on this? Work is a blessing, not a curse. And we're to provide by working, by budgeting, by saving, by paying our bills. Two, you are to faithfully give to your church. 1 Corinthians 16, 2. Take a look at this. On the first day of every week, that's Sunday, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may what? Prosper. Oh, come on. Say it like you mean it. As he may what? Prosper. Now, prospering is a, is a wonderful focus. Uh, there's a kind of a prosper challenge here. As God gives you more, you give more. As God gives you, uh, you know, a, a higher percentage, then you give a higher percentage and see what happens. Uh, some of us need to challenge ourselves and say, what can we give? And can we give more? I, I, I'm tickled by this story. A man, he inherited millions, but he had a weak heart. So his wife was really concerned about it. So she said, asked one of the pastors, one of the elders of the church, 
to kind of break the news to the man that he had inherited these millions and millions and so that he wouldn't have a heart attack. So the pastor agreed or the elder agreed and he came to the man and he wisely asked him, Bob, Bob, what would you do if you inherited millions of dollars? And Bob said to the elder, I, I'd give half of it to the church. And the elder died of a heart attack right there. So I, I, I <clears throat> giving <laughs> involves consistent faithfulness, regular sacrifice. And, and, you know, you don't reach a level and somehow you've arrived. It's all of this belongs to him. And so the challenge is how much more can I give? How much more, it just, not just when you have extra, but part of your worship, part of the needs of others, seeing how you can participate. And then thirdly, another way that we basically give is we're to do good, to be rich in good works, to grow generous, to grow generous and be ready to share. 1 Timothy 6.17, again, instruct those who are rich, that's us, the wealthy, in this present world, not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things. It's all from Him. It is all from Him. So instruct them, the rich, the wealthy, those who have enough food, clothing, and shelter, to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves treasure of a good foundation for the future in heaven, so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. God blesses us for the purpose of blessing others. One more time. God blesses us for the purpose of blessing others, not for the purpose of satisfying our own self-centered pleasures. He blesses us for the purpose of blessing others. Our budgeting should actually set aside funds that anticipate special gifts, that, that care for the needs of others, that, that support others in the work of Christ. Encouraging the saints in difficult circumstances and more. Become a worshipful wealthy person. Become not the wicked wealthy, but be generous, not greedy. Letter B, money exposes the, your heart for the Lord. Money exposes your heart for the Lord. Matthew 6, 21, you know this. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Would you read that with me? Let's read it out loud. Everybody together? For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Guaranteed, the money you earn, the money you have, the money you spend and the money you give is one of the clearest indicators whether you live for Christ or live for yourself. Let me say it again. The money you earn, the money you have, the money you spend, the money you give is the clearest indicator of whether you live for yourself or you live for Christ. Are you more concerned about the things of this world or the things of God? Are you trying to advance God's purposes on this planet? Where your money goes, that's where your heart shows. It's true. You can't get around it. It's true. And don't be stuck with, oh, pat myself on the back when I'm given 10% or whatever. There's no 10% in the Bible. It's how much can you give? Give out of your, 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 your affluence. Give out of your prosperity. Give out of what God gives you. When he gives you more, figure out how you can give more. See, see, make it a game. That's what the Mueller's do. Sorry. We make it a game. We're like, give more. Okay, so let's, let's just up it some more. Let's just up it some more. See what God will do. Be a giver. Be a giver. Be a giver. Be generous. Be known to be generous. Let your neighbors freak out over your generosity. Let the, why are you this way? Why would you do this? Because Christ gave so much to me. That's why. That's when you get their attention. You want to get people's attention in a materialistic culture, start giving materially. And people will be shocked by you. Shocked by you. 
Letter C. Luxury today does not mean luxury tomorrow. <laughs> Sorry, I had fun making that one up. <clears throat> lack of judgment today does not mean lack of judgment tomorrow, right? Throughout this passage, James holds the warning of end times final judgment over the heads of the wicked rich. And anyone who tries to basically <clears throat> live without Christ and dies rejecting Christ will face judgment but if the consequences of sin doesn't happen dramatically in this life, that does not mean it's not going to happen in the next. Are you getting it? In other words, their judgment before God will not be as easy as their life here. It'll be certain. And though it may appear that the wicked get away with prospering at the expense of others for a season, in the end, the wicked deeds will be remembered. God will make all things right. And you will not, you will not be forgotten. Your wealth, your lawyers, your position today cannot rescue you from hell. Can I hear an amen to that? You can't. Your position means nothing before the Lord. You can be a multi-multi-billionaire here today, and if you are without Christ, you are doomed. Nothing in your wealth is going to do anything before God. Your sin must be dealt with. You do not have a standing before Him. In fact, Proverbs 11.4 says this, Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. When you are covered in His righteousness, you can be delivered. And that's something you can't do. You can't live good enough. Only Christ can accomplish that. You give Him your life by faith. James says a day is coming when the true accountant... The one who all of you and me will have to answer to. We have to answer to Christ. And that day is coming. That true accountant will do his audit. And on that day, the unsaved rich will be handed a bill they will never be able to pay. And all their earthly treasures will mean nothing at that moment because only Christ and His righteousness can pay your bill. Only God's righteousness only the free gift of salvation that comes by faith in Jesus Christ can rescue anyone on the day of judgment. Good reminder for us who live in a materialistic world, we need to hear this. I need to hear this. We all need to hear this. I may be painful for you, but we need to hear it. Because this is not forever, and our time is coming. Our time is coming. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for the challenge of it. Uh, thank you for the encouragement of it. We pray, Father, that you would be exalted by it. And Father, that we would respond with generous hearts. We would respond with hearts that seek to give, that seek to be faithful, seek to be those who want to put you on display in a culture that is just overwhelmed by materialism and money. And Father, we'll give you the glory for what you do. And if there's any here who are without your son, would you awaken them to that? Maybe they prayed a prayer or walked an aisle a long time ago or signed a card. Maybe they, they think they're saved, but there's no fruit. There's no generosity. There's no sense of a changed heart. Father, if that's the case, awaken them so that they might truly know you more than anything. And Father, they would know joy now and reward later. We'll give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening today. Sermon audio from the last three years is available by podcast, and a larger archive from Chris Mueller and Faith Bible Church can be found at media.faith-bible.net. And if you would, please leave us a review on iTunes. 
It helps a lot. Thanks, and have a great day.